Well, it's an amazing scripture passage, isn't it? Isabel, thank you for reading it so well. Isaiah does nothing less than enter into the throne room of God. My prayer for us this morning is that all of us in some way would join him there. That we would see God seated upon the throne and experience God in the same way that Isaiah did. As we go through this amazing passage, there are four big truths that I want us to see. And also four implications, an implication for each one. Four big truths. And actually, when we look at these four truths from the scripture, we will see that almost the entire Christian faith is described in this one text. So if you want the Cliff's Notes version of our faith, pay attention. I guess they call it Spark Notes now. This is the abridged version of our whole faith. It's our whole faith in a nutshell based on these four big truths that we see in this text. So let's enter right in. Let's look at it together. The first big truth that I see when I read Isaiah chapter 6 is this. God is holy. God is holy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, Isaiah says. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. There's so many details there we could unpack today. The, the earthquake that happens, the train of God filling, the train of his robe filling the temple. These dramatic and vivid creatures on either side of God, these seraphim, must have been quite frightening for Isaiah to witness them. Six wings each of them had. But there's one detail in the whole picture I want us to focus on this morning. And it is what the seraphim are calling out one to another. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, they say to each other. Now, in the Hebrew language, when you repeat a word once, it means it has exponential increase. In English, if we say a word twice, it usually just means double. But in Hebrew, it means exponential increase. If you repeat a word twice, if you say it three times, it's like saying that man has hundreds of millions of trillions of dollars. It's just an exponential increase when you say something three times in Hebrew. And that's what it says about God in this text. That's what the angels are saying one to another. Holy, holy, holy. It's not just that he's holy. It's holy three times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Or even love, love, love. But he is holy, holy, holy. Holiness just basically means that he is other, that he is unique, that he is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Just think for a second, if you can, about the sheer size of the universe. How big our solar system is, how big our galaxy is, how big the universe is. Now think God is bigger than all of that, and he spoke all of it into existence. He is unimaginably other. He is unimaginably unique. He stands alone. He is pure in himself. 
He is holy, holy, holy. When we approach God, when we enter into his presence, we ought to have the feeling that one of my favorite philosophers describes as a child walking up to the edge of the Niagara Falls. You feel at the same time that terrifying, thunderous sound. And you want to run away from it because you're afraid of the sheer power. But at the very same time, you're drawn in, you're attracted to the utter beauty of the Niagara Falls. This philosopher, Merrill Westfall, says that should be God to us. We should be at the same time terrified of his power, but also drawn into his beauty. When we understand that God is holy, 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 we might approach him with awe and reverence, with fear and trembling, with total worship, because God is holy. Now, I said for each of these four truths from the text, there's going to be an implication. And each of the implications I'm going to pose to you in the form of a question. So God is holy. And here's the question for you by way of implication. Who are you praying to? When you talk to God... When you address him, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I get a little frustrated when I hear people pray. When they say, dear God, please make the rain go away so this event will go well. Dear God, please clear this traffic so I can get to my thing on time. It's like we're talking to the cashier behind the cash register at McDonald's. I'll take a number three with Diet Coke. <laughs> Do we know that we are praying to the God who is holy, holy, holy? When we talk to him, when we address him, he's not just the one who goes and does our bidding so that we can have a better day. He is the holy God, the king of the universe. Isaiah said he's high and lifted up, seated upon his throne. God is holy. Truth number one. Truth number two. People are unholy. Let's read about it. Verse five. People are unholy. This is Isaiah speaking now. He says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, as soon as he is in the presence of the holy God, is suddenly and overwhelmingly aware of his own sin, his own unholiness, his own uncleanness. Now, Isaiah, just think about this for a moment. When he's in the presence of holy God, suddenly he says, my lips are unclean. Think about all the words we've read from Isaiah in the first few chapters. Some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. Songs for generations have been sung based on the words that Isaiah said. He has beautiful words coming off his lips, doesn't he? But suddenly in the presence of holy God, he realizes that anything coming out of his mouth is stained by sin. In the presence of holiness, Isaiah is suddenly aware of his unholiness. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. That word in Hebrew is kind of hard to translate. Some people say, I am undone. Some translations say, I am doomed. 
No matter what the word means, it indicates that Isaiah suddenly in the presence of holy God is aware of his unworthiness, his unholiness. From all we can tell, he is lying prostrate before the king on his face, lying down flat. Woe is me. Not only that, he says, my lips are unclean and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. People are unholy. Some years ago when I was doing ministry in New York City, there was a Sunday night fellowship I was involved in and I led a little Bible study and we had a dinner. It was in someone's home. And after some months, suddenly a group, another Bible study group joined ours and the name of that group was Models for Christ. Beautiful people. (laughs) And one night I had led a little Bible study. By the way, Nancy gave me permission to tell this illustration, so... I, we had led a little Bible study, we had had dinner, and I was standing at the kitchen sink afterwards doing dishes when suddenly this female model came and started doing dishes next to me. And I tried to talk to her, and I went, bleh, 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 bleh. <laughs> It was so embarrassing, and this part is true, you might not believe me. I didn't know what to do with my words, and I finally just decided to wash some dishes, and I grabbed the water sprayer and proceeded to spray her. <laughs> I was undone. (laughs) Now, I've told you that because I know that you've all experienced something like that. Maybe it was middle school for you. Some of you saying, yes, all three years of middle school, that was me. But if it's true that we become undone in the presence of some other human being who's a little bit more attractive than most of the human beings that we come across... How much more so did Isaiah feel undone in the presence of holy, holy, holy God? And how much more so ought we to be aware of our own unholiness in the reality of the presence of holy God? So here's the implication. Again, a question. How do you view yourself? Because of sin, many of us tend to either self-aggrandize or self-loathe. We either try to compensate for our unholiness, our uncleanness, by making ourselves great, by walking around like kings or queens. Or on the other hand, some of us tend to self-loathe. We kind of wallow in the reality of our own sin. We say, woe is me all the time. Because of sin, most of us tend to be one of those two types of people, either self-aggrandize or self-loathe. But in the presence of holy God, we need only to be aware of our own sin, our own unholiness, not because we self-loathe, but because of the third truth that we see in this text. Truth number three, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Let's read about it in verses six and seven. Picture Isaiah now still lying prostrate before the king, saying, woe is me. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I need to just point out a couple of details of what happened there. 
I remember learning about this text when I was a kid, and I pictured it in my mind's eye. It's quite vivid. And I pictured this angel flying over to just basically like a little place where there was burning coals, like a fire or something, and bringing that coal to Isaiah's lips. But what does it say in the text? Where did that coal come from? The altar. I missed that when I learned about this when I was a kid. The angel flew to the altar and picked up a coal and brought that to Isaiah's lips. What is the altar? This whole scene takes place in something resembling the temple in Jerusalem where there's the Holy of Holies where God is seated. But before you get to the Holy of Holies, you would encounter a giant altar, basically like a big fire pit with a metal grate on top with a raging fire inside the fire pit. And on top of the metal grate, you would find a lamb who was slain. It was a gruesome, strange-to-us animal sacrifice that the people of the Old Testament times did. Now, why would God have them do that? Because He wanted them to know the seriousness of their sin, the seriousness of their unholiness, their uncleanness. So what they would do is they'd go through this ritual where they would symbolically transfer their own sins onto the lamb. And then they would slit the throat of the lamb and bleed it out and then place it on the altar and let the raging fire burn it all the way. Because God wanted them to know that the seriousness of their sin deserved death. But in his grace, he offered an atonement that the lamb would die in their place so that they would not have to. This is what people of the Old Testament times understood whenever they saw the fire of the altar. That God's wrath, like a flame, would burn up the last bit of the lamb, taking care of, atoning for, all of the seriousness of their unholiness. It's that altar that the seraphim takes the coal from and brings over to Isaiah's lips, to touch his lips. It's not just some random fire. It's the atoning altar of God's sacrificial love. You and I experience that same grace When we look at the lamb who was slain, who didn't burn in a fire, but who was crushed under the wrath of God until it was extinguished. And it's that saving grace, it's that atonement that forgives all of our sins. Now, look at the scene again. It's Isaiah lying there prostrate before the king saying, woe is me. God instructs the seraphim to take that coal, to bring it over to Isaiah to touch his lips, to offer him purifying sanctification. What doesn't happen here is God doesn't say, okay, Isaiah, stand up, pull yourself together, then enter into my presence. God doesn't do that. He sends the atoning grace from the seraphim, from the altar to Isaiah, who's just lying there helpless, still saying, woe is me. We are saved by grace. What's the implication? Here's a question for you. The implication, knowing that, is why are you still trying to impress God with your holiness? Now, this is an important question for many of us. I hear this all the time. I hear people saying things like, you know, I have to earn more points with God. I have to earn my way into heaven. God will be impressed with me. God is mad at me when I don't go to church, or God is disappointed in me when I don't do this or don't do that, but he's impressed with me when I do this or do that, when I'm being a a good person for God. We think that God is impressed with our holiness. 
It's supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to be impressed with His holiness. And by His grace, He saves us. There are two things in one verse. Verse 7. It says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Do you see those are two different things? Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. We have a little Bible study on Thursday mornings, and our head elder, Carl Higby, pointed out that this was really striking him. He said, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The guilt, he described, is like that baggage around your heart. It's like regret when you think about all the ways that you've sinned. And he said, isn't it amazing that God comes and takes that away, takes it off of our hearts, and he atones for our sin by letting Jesus die in our place. Those are two powerful truths that God has done for us, not because of our holiness, not because of our impressiveness, our obedience, our attendance in church, our good things in the community, but because of our unholiness and our unworthiness. He comes to us to forgive us, to take away our guilt, to atone for our sins, to purify us by His grace. That's the third truth. We're saved by grace. The fourth truth is that we are sent by grace. We've heard probably a thousand times that we're saved by grace, but have you ever considered that you also are sent by His grace? Let's look at verse 8 together. Isaiah continues to speak, and he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, this is kind of funny to me. Uh, I was talking about this verse with my wife Nancy this week, and she said it kind of reminds her of like a grandmother. You know, Isaiah is the only one standing there. And God says, who will I send? It's kind of like a grandmother looking at her grandchild saying, who's going to give me a hug? (laughs) Now, if I'm Isaiah sitting there, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe one of those six-winged creatures should go. (laughs) But he says, here I am. Now, let's look at the difference between Isaiah in one moment and Isaiah in the next moment. In one moment, he says, woe is me. And in the next moment, he says, send me. He goes from his total awareness of his unholiness and his unworthiness. Suddenly, he's saying, send me. I'll be your ambassador out there in the world. Do you see the transformation? From lying prostrate before the holy king saying, woe is me, to suddenly I picture him standing up now, having been atoned for, saying, I am now worthy at least to be your ambassador out there in the world. Send me. What happened between those two scenes is the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb. It's a huge difference in Isaiah's life, his whole experience. We are sent by grace. We're not sent because of our own merit, our own worthiness, our own skill set, our own education. We're sent by his grace. He's the one who qualifies us to go and be his ambassadors in the world. We have to remember that as Christians. If any of us say, here I am, send me, we have to know that it's not under our own merit, but it's simply because the lamb died in our place and God has brought that atoning grace, that that forgiveness, that mercy to us in our place of unholiness, qualified us, raising us up, and then sending us in his name. 
That way when we go out and we operate as sent ones, he gets all the credit. Because we're sent by grace. So here's the implication. Where are you? Isaiah said, here I am. So where are you? Are you hiding? Are you running? Are you too busy? Are you too complacent? Where are you? No matter how you answered that question there in your, in your mind a moment ago, my prayer for you is that in some way today, you would know what happened on the altar for you. You would know what happened on the cross. You would know that you are saved by grace, that you are unholy, but in his grace he has saved you through Jesus and that you'd be raised up and that you would say, I'm right here, God, right here standing before you. Here I am. Now send me. Because there's a whole world out there that needs sent ones like us. Not people who are qualified, but people who are sent by grace. God is holy. People are unholy. We are saved by grace and we are sent by grace. Who are you praying to? How do you think of yourself? Why are you still trying to impress God with your holiness? And finally, where are you? Will you be one who is sent by grace? Amen.